it's week four here at ES46560 Race Class Empire, the Olympics. We've made it almost halfway through this course. I hope everyone's doing well. It's an interesting time right now under a pandemic because one of the articles, one of the, the kind of thematic articles I keep seeing is how the earth is really benefiting from us staying at home. Whether we're thinking about emissions, we're not flying as much, we're not driving as much, all kinds of nature has popped back up in various areas because we aren't beating the earth into the ground. And I'm super interested in thinking about, especially this week, we're thinking about not only how the Olympics are built, literally built, as well as the environmental impact. So one of the things I want to think about is both how the Olympics affect the environment in terms of mass amounts of people traveling to one place, to be in venues that have just been built for this occasion, as well as how the environment and our changing landscape in terms of global warming, for example, affect the ability for future games to be put on, both in terms of thinking about the cleanliness of our water, how clean our air is, can we run a marathon in it, is it cold enough for snow for the Winter Olympics? I think all of those things really factor in. So I want to think about this duality between can Olympics game happen because of how the environment is? And then what effect then does the Olympics, do the Olympics have um, on the environment? So today we're focusing on more modern Olympics today. You can obviously tell um, that this is not a chronological course. 2008, 2010, 2016 are the three Olympics that we'll talk about quite a bit. And I want you to start thinking about your final project. We're here in week four. And what I would really like everyone to consider, and unless there's any sharp issue with folks not being able to access resources, I'm very open to amending that. But what I would really love to have is a strong season of a podcast. You've been listening to me do podcasts for weeks now, and I would really like to encourage you to think about how you would create your own. So this podcast would either focus on a winter or summer Olympic Games, focusing in on that, um, giving us the start to finish of that game, the major issues involved, the major performances, what we'll remember the most about those games. Or you can pick a theme from this course. You can think about something like this week we're talking about environmental impact in the Olympics. We'll talk about protests in the Olympics next week. You can think about things such as Tokyo and coronavirus. Those are all on the table, but there's also some themes I probably haven't, there's many themes I haven't thought about. So it doesn't have to stick to the major themes of this course. You can also add one of your own. So you can either focus on, again, one year, one Olympic Games, or a theme that covers a broad number of Olympics. I'm going to post a list of resources and create a short video showing you how to create the podcast, so don't worry about that at all. You don't need any fancy equipment, and you don't need to buy anything for this project. So I really want to emphasize that this podcast project will be you taking the text from this course and elsewhere that you find and creating a short podcast, not unlike these kind of informative ones where I'm talking to you. You'll bring in sound, for example, if you would like, um, and really help enhance what the Olympics means to you through audio. Again, we'll talk more about that in the future. I'll create a couple of videos to help walk you through everything. But I want to go ahead and put that on your radar as we'll be thinking about the creating an abstract that kind of focuses on what your final project will entail. So 
for the discussion board this week, I'm asking you to pick a previous or future Olympic Games and examine it through the lens of the visual information provided by the Architecture of the Games website and or the USA Today page, which features over 20 Olympic villages. The first thing you'll do is describe the architectural plan and the venues used or under construction. I'm asking you to think about the transformations that have taken place at the venue. This is for especially thinking about for previous ones, how is it being used now? For future ones, what was there before? Did people live there before? Were they kicked out of their homes? What happened at that previous site? Was it just empty land? And third, I want you to think about what story is being told about the Olympics and the host city through its planned or executed architecture. All right, so it's a really focused in discussion board for this week. I look forward to hearing from you. So I'm really thinking through all, putting all these pieces together, I wanna think about what the building of the Olympics mean for both the city and as we learn in the Wright Thompson piece, the rural areas that surround a host city. What happens after the Olympics end? And what does this mean for our larger trajectory when we think about issues of climate change, for example? So in the Jesse Johnston piece from Ghost Town to Success Story, we're introduced to the remnants of the Olympics in Vancouver, British Columbia in 2010. This is where our Winter Olympics was held. And it's funny, the first business to open and succeed is a liquor store, get this, which was formerly the chapel for athletes during the games. It was also used as a location for dystopian and horror films. And in many ways, what's interesting, the quote in the piece I liked, this idea of creating a community from scratch. So that is both what happens when the Olympics come to a host city. There has to be an Olympic village, these sites, these venues that are built, many of them from scratch or utilizing, renovating previous venues. And then once the Olympics leave, you have to recreate a community from scratch at the same time. Thinking about the various ways in which community doesn't just happen, especially once the Olympics leave, the, the venue has largely been marked as an Olympic site and less so about the people that actually inhabit that city. Jesse Johnson interviews city planner Brent Tadarian, who oversaw the project for the Vancouver Games. And he says, quote, there's nothing quite so focusing as an Olympic deadline. To say there's sort of a figurative gun to your head is not an understatement, end quote. And that really embodies the stress and pressure that cities and those that work for the city are under to make the games happen, to make all the venues align, to make all of the housing work. And for Vancouver in particular, it's interesting because we hit 2008, which is a major moment in the global economy. And Vancouver was forced to take a $690 million hit in debt to ensure the village was completed in time. So a lot of times when we think about that, you think about how there are people that are working 24 hours a day on the venue. That costs a lot of money to have that many people, that many bodies, without violating major, major human rights violations, which also is an issue that we definitely will talk about in this class. And then thinking about when going into debt, when taking out those loans at a very precarious moment in the global economy, what that means in terms of wanting to turn quickly turn around the Olympic Village into something that's profitable for the city to recoup that money. Vancouver is perhaps one of the best case scenarios for a former Olympic site. I visited the Vancouver Games Olympic Village area um, a couple of times recently, since the Olympics, I should say. And it's a really vibrant space of restaurants, shopping, high-rise apartment complexes, it sits near the water, it's really gorgeous. But the best case scenario is that they didn't lose money, but they also didn't receive millions of dollars that were left owing on the land. That's what it's told at the end of the piece. 
And so thinking about that as one of the best case scenarios, given what we know about these kind of dormant spaces that often stay that way for a long time, the fact that less than 10 years after those Olympic Games is a viable, profitable space that is a space that you go to, you want to hang out. It's not this ghost town anymore. So a 10-year turnaround is actually considered really great. And I, I say 10-year turnaround. They did that in, in less than that. This has been a vibrant space for a while. But I also want to think about what other cities are doing. If we go to the USA Today slideshow, we can look at other cities and what they've done. You can see a variety of reuse concepts. You know, largely it's used for housing, often for students. But also in Montreal, keeping it Canadian, the biodome. There's a zoo, a botanical gardens, an aquarium. Public spaces for interaction is very common in a lot of these, whether it's food trucks, music, dancing, skating rinks. Former Olympic sites are often used for tourism, where you can visit the remnants of a previous Olympic Games. Sometimes museums are built on these sites. And then other times they become training sites for future Olympians, as in Calgary, or for the next big mega sporting event, as in Moscow. It's one of the ways that for a lot of host cities and countries, you can leverage the next mega sporting event by already having those venues and saying, these are already up to date, they're still being used, they're not run down. I posted a clip on Canvas regarding the Summer Youth Olympic Games in 2022, which will be the first Olympic event held in an African country. And the Summer Youth Olympics, um, I will be in Senegal, and I posted the video that is very much trying to sell Senegal and really Africa um, in general as a really vibrant space for sporting events. I encourage you to watch the video and get an idea of how there's both um, this very cultural and language diversity that's happening in the clip, as well as what Senegal is trying to show um, by hosting the Summer Youth Olympics. So in Behind the Bamboo Curtain, Wright Thompson's writing for ESPN and thinking about the lead up to the game. So we have this aftermath we're getting through thinking about Vancouver, but there's these environmental issues and these economic issues even before the Olympics begin. And he's thinking about 2008 Olympics in Beijing, and what it means for all the other cities in China that aren't Beijing. And I say all of the other. He goes through several um, rural areas of China thinking about the long-term impact of those spaces and how when a host city has the Olympics, it's very unevenly spread out in terms of resources, in terms of opportunity, in terms of economic growth. It doesn't apply to the entire country equally, especially a country as large as China. He thinks about starting in Beijing, he's looking at everything happening, and he says, quote, with just a year into the opening ceremony and all the metaphors of rebirth that go along with it, the construction of the city is breathtaking. Entire ancient neighborhoods are bulldozed by day. At night, sparks rain down the sides of buildings, welders working around the clock, replacing the old with the new, end quote. In that piece, he's kind of giving us this very spectacular view of Again, this around-the-clock work to make the Olympics happen. When I read this, I'm actually sitting with the idea of these ancient neighborhoods that are being bulldozed. I'm thinking about who lives there. I'm thinking about what kind of history we lose by bulldozing those spaces. I think about when we think about rebirth, like what areas are rebirthed, what areas are, are deemed worthy of rebirth or even being seen by the world. And he says entrenched in all this is values of what the quote-unquote new China should look like. The Olympics offer host countries a chance to reintroduce themselves to the world in case there were any previous missteps, stereotypes, or bad first impressions. And then he ventures outside of Beijing and follows a 16-year-old named Sun home to his village. 
where water and meat are scarce, less than 500 kilometers from Beijing. He says, quote, Sonnen never heard of the Olympics until Beijing's bid was successful. Now he has a vague notion of what will actually happen in a year's time. He is certain of one thing, it will not benefit him, end quote. Sun tells him, this is a very poor village and if people get by, that's a good day. Nobody cares about the Olympics. Wright Thompson then meets with miners who are off work for the Olympics for three weeks. That's their, their connection to the Olympics is definitely tied to their labor, not working. And Wright asks them, is it because uh, you plan on watching the games and your job just wants to let you off? He says, this is such dangerous work, the state doesn't want to risk a catastrophic accident resulting in bad press. Even as we know, it's a high death rate, a very dangerous job to have anything happen outside of the already really, really strong numbers in terms of death and injury in the mind would be a bad look for China. Rather than making the environment safer for its employees, it's safer to just give them three weeks off work. So I want to pause for a second and think about these road diaries. Um, And while they're very well written, Wright Thompson is an incredible writer, they offer an extremely Western-centric view of rural China. He calls his interpreter Austin because she went to the University of Texas. He uses phrases like, this must be what America was like 150 years ago. Driving through a particular area, he describes as fluorescent green rice paddies laid down in steps halfway up the side of a mountain, men in conical straw hats, entire villages picked the crops, end quote. He calls it the China I'd imagined, the old China. And finally, one other phrase I want to pull up. He says, it's like driving through the Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon movie set. And I want to point out in all of these phrases, he's writing for an American-centric audience. When he compares parts of really beautiful Chinese countryside, he calls it um, like a Utah trout stream. And so for a lot of these references, he's writing to a very specific audience. But I want to be very aware and really want to point out the ways that he's also very much invested in an orientalist take and I use this term orientalist it's coming out of Edward Said's orientalism which talks about the various ways that there is this east-west dynamic and the ways that the east is read by the west is rooted in these racist logics that continue to perpetrate themselves and it does so we see most often now in things like television and film but also if you think about the various ways even that this global pandemic has been read um, as the China virus, the China, the China issue, there's ways that Orientalism seeps into our politics, into our pop culture in particular ways, and there's ways that I really want to push back on, as great as Wright Thompson's piece is in terms of offering up the environmental impact for the games as well as the economic impact or lack thereof for those that are living outside of the city. It's impossible for me to read this without being critical of the various ways that he is reading Chinese bodies in that space, how he tries to make China legible to the West, and think about what we can do in our work to kind of undo a lot of those logics. Okay, that's the end of my critique there. But one of the things I really love about the piece is the voices that we get to hear from those that are living there. Some people in various areas speaking about the tech town he visits are really excited about the games. Or where like electronics are built, for example, because there is more of a direct connection to the games and benefiting from them than there are in the other towns that he visits. I really like this quote from Mr. Lee, who is one of the folks he interviews. He says, quote, 
China hosting the Olympics is an opportunity for China to show the world its strength. And the torch passing to Nianyang, which is that tech city, makes the people very proud. It's proof of the country's power, end quote. Going back to Redeker, right, that's the opiative state. This idea of what you get, the China they represent, proof of the country's power. These kind of, this kind of language, I think, is really important in thinking through what the Olympics are supposed to do for some folks while not doing for others. Finally, the last quote I really love from the Thompson piece, he says, this simple question, are you excited about the Olympics, is actually a much more complicated one in disguise, one that gets to the heart of modern China. It's many questions, really. Are you moving forward or being left behind? Do you have something to offer? Are you the future or the past? Are you a have or a have not, end quote. And so that to me is really rich in terms of thinking about who can be excited for the Olympics, how the Olympics affect certain people over others. And I think he does a really job, good job at getting at the class dynamic, the rural versus urban, the old versus new, um, who can move forward, who can be included. I think he does a really great job there. There obviously are critiques. I am always open to hearing your critiques about the pieces that are chosen. I don't pick only people that I agree with um, for readings because I do think that there's a provocation in choosing things that um, you don't agree with or reading against the grain of what someone is writing.